to my beautiful family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the first official episode of the Metaphorigens podcast. And that was the moment. The moment I drank the Kool-Aid. You know, that distinctly Canadian flavor called multiculturalism? It was not until 1977 that Jones decided to move and create a commune in the jungles of Guyana in South America. His followers came in waves, with his core followers coming first and establishing the foundation which later became known as Jonestown. Scientists stopped thinking explaining science will fix things. Basically, in a calm and simple way, if you were given a view of someone's weekly schedule, where does climate change affect them? their family, their business. And that's freaking complicated. (laughs) To my incredible family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the second episode of the Metaphorigens podcast. It's raining cats and dogs, he says. Look. And you all turn to the window and see a bunch of fat tabbies and bulldogs crashing to the ground and this, I think is a neat example as to how powerful a particular expression could be over less imaginative language. Perhaps these metallic instruments were the true meaning and the original phrase was it's raining cat bolts, dog bolts, and pitchforks before being shortened to what it is today. A user's guide to metaphors in ecology and evolution. The purpose for writing the article is simple. Should scientists use metaphor and imagery when discussing complex topics? Things like adaptive radiation, phylogenetic trees, genetic blueprint, and my personal favorite, moonlighting proteins. I've realized that at times, despite how interesting nature itself is, the way science has described it has stripped the notion of all interesting value. And in the end, are scientists not conducting fascinating research about a larger idea? To my fantastic family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the third episode of the Metaphorigens podcast. No, the fact that you took the last straw is the last straw. And then in a fit of rage, you chuck your margarita glass at them and throw a huge hissy fit, weekend ruined, the end. How it's settled on straws and camels is not known. Though feather and horse are used, it certainly summarizes all that I spoke about regarding a succession of minor events which led to an action. COVID-19, standing for Coronavirus Disease 2019. Rather, I'd like to speak about media interviews, particularly of medical professionals and those of scientific personalities. Regarding the interview, Dr. Aylward was poised and calm, delivering direct and informative answers to all questions he was given. The interviewer, anchorwoman Donna Friesen, is also calm and direct. Her questions were short and clear, requiring an apolitical response. There was no cutting off, allowing the interviewee to have the majority of the airtime to disseminate as much information as he could. What I think is bad for science is how easy we are to ask science personalities like Dr. Tyson about something like the COVID-19 outbreak. Stephen Colbert, who I also like, despite how his jokes about Trump are incredibly tiresome, asked him about his thoughts about the coronavirus despite how he's not. He's not a virologist, an immunologist, or an epidemiologist then why do we need to know his opinion? 
to my astonishing family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. I don't know how to rephrase it for your easiest challenge and final brain teaser. Eat this piece of cake. The correct response was to literally eat the piece of cake. It was that easy. I'm sorry, I have to say this. You just received your just desserts. Perhaps its first usage in print was actually not its true origin story. There is actually a darker beginning to this expression, tied with the similar expressions, that's a cakewalk, and the other cake idiom, takes the cake. Many sources have suggested that the origin of a piece of cake comes from the times of American slavery back in the 19th century. But one of the most well-known things the public knows about science, though many do not know much about it other than its name and its prestigiousness. I'm talking about the Nobel Prize. Is the Nobel Prize good for science? The awards were first established in 1895 by the Swedish inventor Alfred Nobel. He is most commonly known not only as the creator of this coveted prize, but also for the invention of dynamite. Thus, Nobel wanted to change his legacy, and allocated 94% of his capital to the creation of Nobel Prizes in the fields of physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature, and for the holding or promotion of peace congresses. All this negativity, but yet the authors believe that the Nobel Prize should not be abolished, only changed in the way they are given and what happened after the recipient is named. As I've mentioned, you have probably heard of the Nobel Prize whether you are in science or not. And that's good. It stimulates interest in people that otherwise might not have manifested. But perhaps this long-running award, with old traditions and rules, can be modified to serve a greater purpose. To my magnificent family and friends near and far, old and new, this is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. Today I will dive specifically into a topic that affects mostly everybody working in science or those interested in science, and that is scientific presentations. That means you have people who will actually listen to you because they know you, people who will listen to you because they have a vested interest, i.e. your topic impacts them personally, people who will passively listen to you, and people who might not even wish to listen to you at all. No matter your audience, delivery of your content is by far the most important thing about giving a presentation. It's got to be clear but also intriguing, challenging but also flowing as if you can anticipate what questions your audience is thinking as you speak. Aware that public speaking, whether that be through the medium on a stage, through a video, through a podcast, or through writing, ultimately has one goal, to present an idea and stick that idea in the heads of listeners and readers such that they can materialize into something they can understand and branch off other ideas they already hold. Give listeners a reason to care and stir the only common attention keeper there is, curiosity. Slides should be the supporting cast of your talk. Plan out what you want to convey before you design your slides. In other words, can you convey your idea without having any slides at all? The answer to that question should be yes. That one of the most important rules about public speaking is to not show or tell the audience that you are nervous. Be aware. Be aware of the rate of your speech. Breathe normally. Have pauses that can let ideas sink in and give you time to think. Give eye contact like you would give to any person you're conversing with, but to an audience instead. But for the majority of us, 
practicing will give us the confidence we need to really drive that presentation home. And isn't that just Wonder Bread? To my spectacular family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. Look, I killed two birds with one stone. What are the odds, huh? We can eat them for our dinner tonight. You look at the animals in her hand and freak out. Honey, those are bats. Other cultures have developed their own spin of blunt force trauma. Many European countries have specified the type of bird to hit, like pigeons in Italy and doves in Greece. Other countries have swapped birds for other animals. For example, in Portugal and Ukraine, birds are switched with rabbits or hares, and in Germany and the Netherlands, flies are the ones given the fatal blow. The French don't even choose which animal to stone with their expression, faire d'une pierre de cul, and Poles just like to roast two pieces of meat on one fire. Yet, a common phrase that was used and started 100 years earlier was to stop two gaps with one push. This aphorism was first mentioned in the Proverbs of John Hayward, an English writer, in 1546. Those who can do, can't teach. In summation, he discusses various incidences in which brilliant people have often been poor educators. As you get better and better at what you do, your ability to communicate your understanding or to help others learn that skill often gets worse and worse. It's not as simple as regurgitating the knowledge found in textbooks and published papers and expect students to take initiative. Personalize it. Create a story that clings to prior ideas of students and gives them that novel way of viewing the world. A quote ironically credited to Einstein is that, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. But shouldn't the scientific community and all high-level disciplines aspire to both advance their fields and prepare the next generation? To my dazzling family and friends near and far, old and new, this is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. Ew, you say under your breath. Don't judge a book by its cover, says the bookkeep. I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, right. What's this going to have? Some crazy room where the government forces people to confront their greatest nightmare in order to betray the love of their life? In the story, one of the characters named Mr. Tulliver explains how he came to own a controversial book, The History of the Devil by Daniel Defoe. Mr. Tulliver says the following, But it seems one mustn't judge by the outside. This is a puzzling world. My 19th century English accent, everyone. Your speech is packed with misunderstood, unconscious messages. The article starts with setting the scene, and first introduces uhs and ums. In linguistics, they are defined by many terms like fillers, filled pauses, hesitation markers, and planners. They are given the connotation that the speaker is, quote, nervous, ignorant, and sloppy even lacking in knowledge, but why are we inclined to utter sounds when silence is both better and easier? An um or uh is our brains buffering a speech task, and it happens so often in public because people are trying not to misspeak. One 2007 study determined that the filler uh signaled listeners of a short delay in upcoming speech, while the filler um signaled listeners of a longer delay. 
Think about that next time you try and think about what you're trying to say. The aversion to disfluencies may well have arisen from speakers' horror at hearing their own recorded voices. The fact that many like myself are incapable of dwelling within silence for even an unnoticeable moment by using a meaningless sound seems absurd. But maybe, um, I'm like, uh, ruminating too much. To my exceptional family and friends, near and far, old and new. This is Kevin McCurry on the mic, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. You say, I can explain. No need. The bookie nods to the first bodyguard. For the audition, break a leg, will ya? And left the apartment. This expression is unique as it is an example of an ironic dead metaphor. Ironic in that, by hoping your conversational partner breaks a leg, you are... Contrary to an alien civilization who thinks they finally understand the English language, actually wishing them good luck. There are also alternatives to break a leg, depending on the type of art you are showcasing. Take dancers who shout MERDE, the French word for shit, to each other before their performance or wishing TOI 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 to an opera singer. But unfortunately, this may be the first episode in which I cannot decisively conclude the true original meaning to an expression. In this case, break a leg. The scientific paper is obsolete. This is an interesting article as it hits square on the nose what I believe is a major problem the scientific community has, the format of scientific papers. I would assume most of the people hearing this have read a scientific article at some point in your life. I hope you would agree that papers are the most soul-crushing, boring piece of literature in all of existence. And yes, perhaps it's not the goal of researchers to explain to the public its importance through this medium, but it certainly should be the goal to walk fellow researchers through a story. What would you get if you designed the scientific paper from scratch today? Ideas that although require years of knowledge to fully understand, that still could be understood regarding the motivations and the methods. The public could stop there, and experts could continue on doing what the scientific community has been doing freely for years, properly critique. To my marvelous family and friends near and far, old and new, this is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. You finally head to the dynamic art piece and standing at the front of the line featuring other influential people of history, shout at the crowd, why is everyone ignoring the elephant in the room? Perhaps he was referencing a known intellectual debate between Ludwig Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell about truly knowing whether there are no rhinoceroses in their room, to finally the definitive usage of an elephant in a room being so big that you can't, though better wording would have been shouldn't, ignore it. These are the top 20 scientific discoveries of the decade. My interest lies in the last discovery mentioned in the article labeled, Redefining the Units of Science. But what really is a pound or a kilogram? A mile or meter? An hour or second? And why do we have negative degrees when we can just have low numbers? Scientists have gradually redefined classical units in terms of universal constants. Whenever you want to know the exact mass of something, which is the amount of matter something contains, different from the weight of something, which is just the force of gravity exerted on it, 
you need to compare it to something of a known amount of matter. Whether we work in a lab or use the technologies that were developed in a lab to better our understanding and quality of life by defining the very units that describe it, it is amazing how far we've come and how much more we can communicate on the nature of reality. To my pulchritudinous family and friends near and far, old and new, this is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. A topic that everybody not only working in science has experienced, but now almost everyone in the world has familiarity with due to global problems like climate change and infectious disease. That topic is scientific literature. I'm talking about scientific articles that are published in credible scientific journals by notable scientific personnel reviewed by anonymous scientific experts. We often think that the knowledge we hear about in daily news, saturated by thousands of books, newspapers, websites, TV channels, radio or podcast broadcasts, and even scientific literature itself, are true. But it is filtered. These people will always have biases. And it is the ethical value of any one person in this chain to ensure that bias is reduced as much as possible and the conclusion derived from observation and experimentation still hold true. What I'm trying to advise is to become scientifically literate. Through searching, reading, and analyzing scientific literature, I advise you to understand what researchers did, what results they obtained, and how they interpreted these results. The point is to start somewhere, if you can. Have you ever been told that Wikipedia is not a great reference for obtaining knowledge? That's a load of nonsense. Yes, of course it's feasible for anyone to modify Wikipedia pages. Except that's not even true. You can get scientific literature simply by using any search engine as well. If you're trying to get an overview of a specific topic, I would suggest searching something like review about and then fill in the blank. That's at the very least 5 to 10 hours of reading. No one will do that. No one will want to do that. Even people paid to do this for a living are not going to do that. However, despite my juxtaposition, papers are usually never read as a story from start to finish. For myself, I often have to read a paper two to three times in order to fully grasp what the authors are trying to show me. Perhaps to the horror of the average reader, and in the words of Dr. Daniel Oppenheimer, quote, ignore the consequences of erudite vernacular utilized irrespective of necessity or the problems with using long words needlessly. You will often hear that scientific literature undergoes what is called a peer review, and this distinguishes it from the anecdotal knowledge of our past predecessors. Throughout their career, academics volunteer to peer review papers as part of their dedication to their field. Volunteer. These reviews often remain anonymous, on the author's end, single blind, or also on the reviewer's end, double blind. Altogether, in most journals of high acclaim, this process allows for less than 20% of submitted manuscripts, the rough, unformatted papers, to be accepted for publication. By understanding each aspect, we can easily see the significance of scientific literature and respect researchers who are striving to get to the truth. And that does it for Season 1. Thanks for listening to the special season finale of Metaphorogens. Remember to rate and subscribe for more episodes and to follow the podcast on Instagram for updates on the Season 2 return coming to you sometime in July. But until then, stay skeptical but curious. <laughs>